Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. A lot of people are trying to come up with these very clever situations of if we do fiscal over here and QE over here and mix them together and all these, you know, what are called theories of grand design that all of a sudden we're going to produce magical results. I don't think that there's a painless solution to the problem that we haven't thought of over the last 5,000 years of history. What we ultimately have to do is we have to correct uh, the debt problem. People don't want to do that though because there's pain associated with that. So it, it's quite difficult here. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest, Mr. Eric Besmejian. Eric, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Michael. Good to be with you. Yeah, very excited. Um, we got a lot of really interesting stuff to cover today. Uh, I want to start on this topic of growth in general. So I think you were pretty early to kind of calling this uh, idea of slowing uh, growth, right? We just saw an inversion of the yield curve uh, across a whole bunch of different durations. Uh, but could you just kind of walk us through how you're thinking about growth in the economy today? Why were you so quicker, uh, so much quicker calling a slowing growth than many of the other analysts out there? Sure. So when I look at the world, I look at the world through two main timeframes. I have a, a secular economic view, which is three to five plus years, uh, the real structural forces in the economy, mainly debt and demographics. And then I'm looking on a shorter term cyclical time frame, six to 18 months. So uh, when I approach my forecast, I'm always starting with the long term secular uh, view, because that's what I call gravity in the economy, right? Uh, and the, the secular view for growth certainly hasn't changed. We have uh, declining population growth. We have aging population, so the composition of the demographics is worsening. And we have continued rising debt levels, which is suppressing productivity. Those two factors together give you a very uh, strong recipe for a declining uh, trend in economic growth, right? So, so none of that changed at all. And I think a lot of people um, misunderstood the fact that fiscal stimulus can create a short-term pop in growth, but fiscal stimulus doesn't change an economy's trend potential or trend economic growth. Um, so that's kind of how we have to start the process. And we know that that's not changing. So if gravity in the economy is going to be pulling us lower, we know that from you know, a bias perspective that every cyclical upturn is going to be uh, weaker or fleeting, and every cyclical downturn is going to be longer lasting, harder to shake, they're going to appear quicker, they're going to last longer. So the, the long-term trend didn't change, we knew that, but we had this strong cyclical upturn coming out of the COVID lockdown. And when I look at cyclical trends, I'm looking at leading economic indicators, right? I'm trying to see what in the economic sequence moves first, second, third, all the way to mm. what we would call the coincident trend, which is what you mentioned. We all agree that the economic growth rate is slowing now because it's coming into what we would call coincident economic indicators. The consumption numbers are falling in real terms. The, the production numbers are falling in real terms. And certainly in real terms, the income numbers are falling quite sharply. So when I'm looking at the cyclical trends, I would start by looking at what I would call longer leading economic indicators, right? So we, we know that in the first part of the sequence, we have a rate of change, uh, acceleration or deceleration from the, from the Fed, right? Or monetary policy. And 
Um, it's important to note that it's the rate of change that matters. We can't say, well, the Fed is still accommodative or they're still tight. It's relative to six months ago. It's relative to 12 months ago, right? And the peak in Federal Reserve easing was August of 2020, right? That was when they were doing the, the largest rate of change increase in quantitative easing. Interest rates were low. The belly of the curve was very low. Those were the, the rate of change easiest conditions. And since then, it's been getting slightly tighter. Now, it took a while to get what many people would consider tighter, but certainly by the end of last year in September, when they started to talk about rate hikes, it was clear that you know, the, the rate of change or the tone in monetary policy had shifted, right? So where would that impact next? If, if the Federal Reserve is gonna get tighter, we would see uh, an increase in interest rates, right? We'd see both an increase in short-term interest rates forecasting those rate hikes, and we'd see an increase in what I call private borrowing rates. So things like corporate rates, mortgage rates, things like that. So those rates also hit lows at the end of 2020. And by the middle of 2021, we saw mortgage rates start to tick up a little bit. Very slowly, though. You know, they hit maybe 260 at the end of 2020. And by the middle of 2020, maybe they were 320 or 330. Everyone would say that's still very low, but it's higher than it was at, 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 the, at the trough, right? So we have rate of change tightening in monetary policy. We have an increase in private borrowing rates. That would then start to squeeze corporate margins, right? That would be the next step in the sequence. It would squeeze corporate margins or household margins in, in, the, uh, in the sense of real income. Did we see that occur? We, we certainly did. Then we would see corporations you know, reduce their hours worked. Sort of this logical flow of leading economic indicators, things that I outline in, in, in my monthly reports. We saw all of that come through the economic data by the summer of, of 2021, very, very clearly. So uh, I started to call for a downturn in economic growth. And uh, just last week, we saw ISM new orders hit a 22-month low. The headline for ISM hit a 22-month low back to you know, May of 2020. So all of a sudden, it hit everybody that, yeah, growth is really slowing, the yield curve inverted. So I think that the combination of having that gravitational bias is extremely important, and then having a process to track the leading indicators is what allowed me to get ahead of the downturn in growth. Inflation is another topic that I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, absolutely. So let's even if we could just almost diagram here, right? So everything kind of the economic gravity gets determined by interest rates. And I love how you phrase that the rate of change and what's going on in the interest rate kind of monetary accommodation bucket, then that kind of uh, flows through uh, a whole bunch of different things in the economy. Maybe the first thing that kind of moves is, is housing, right? Then it's forward-looking um, economic indicators, right? So we talked about the ISM. Uh, then it kind of that kind of filters through into corporate profits. And then finally, that gets translated to unemployment, right? So exactly. obviously, economies are big things. These big changes, they, they wind their way through. Let's start with the very top of that pyramid. Let's talk about interest rates. Uh, so obviously, forecast about uh, where, you know, the Fed funds rate has... Uh, where it's going to end up has changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We're now pricing in, I haven't even seen the latest, like 10 rate hikes or something like that, a yep. Fed funds rate of 2.5%. Uh, Over 3%. Over 3%. <laughs> All right. 3%. Okay. Just question to you, do you think that we get there? So I, I don't think that we'll end up getting there. Mm -hmm. um, so, by the way, you outlined that, that economic sequence perfectly. 
thank you. And and I have a chart that uh, I want to show about why I believe that the the Fed funds rate won't. The the reason that I think that the interest rate forecast is is too aggressive and why the yield curve inverted is this chart here. So what this chart shows is the 20 year trend in nominal GDP growth. This includes inflation, right? So I don't want the inflation people to come start yelling at me. This includes inflation. This is nominal GDP and it's a long-term 20 year annualized growth rate. And the reason I graph it on such a long-term is because I'm trying to extrapolate what's the trend, right? I'm trying to filter out the cyclical ups and downs, the fiscal stimulus parts, What's the potential growth? And we can see that the black line is clearly trending lower and lower and lower and lower. And that's a result of the debt and the demographics that we talked about. The blue line is the federal funds rate. And what you can see is every time that the federal funds rate pushes up towards that, that trend in nominal growth, you generally get a recession because you can't have short-term mm. interest rates that are you know higher than the economy's potential growth. Uh, but what's also interesting to note, uh, Michael, is that you'll see that in the chart, particularly before COVID, we can take the COVID recession out of it because it was a little bit unique. But you'll note in the before the 1990s recession, we had to get quite a bit above that trend in the Fed funds rate, then just mm -hmm. a little bit above that trend. And then we didn't even get to that trend before the 2000s. So it's taking less and less Fed funds rate or short term interest rate pressure against that trend to create economic downturns. And that's mainly a result of the uh, increased indebtedness that we've had. So um, I extrapolated a very generous uh, secular economic trend, basically forecasting that over the next five or six years, the potential is going to stay the same, even though we have worse demographics and higher debt. I just you know, calculated it's going to stay the same. And that dotted red line is where the Fed funds rate projection is going to go. Uh, as soon as we crossed you know, the, the, the 250 basis point level in Fed funds rate pricing, the yield curve collapsed. And I have a chart in there of the yield curve you know, basically falling 50, 60 basis points of compression in, in a matter of weeks uh, based on what I believe is, is, is the result of this chart. Just that the, the long-term 30-year rate is sensitive to this GDP growth trend, this black line. And that black line is going to continue to grind lower, and they're going to try and force the Fed funds rate up into that. And that, and the yield curve is inversion is reflecting the probability that that's going to create um, a recession. And and I think again, we go through this exercise every time the Fed goes or attempts to go through a rate hiking cycle is that people mistake a cyclical trend for a structural or a secular shift. Right. In 2018, Trump uh, did some tax cuts. They had some fiscal stimulus and it was growth that changed this time. Everyone thought that growth was going to be three percent as far as the eye could see. We actually barely had one year of three percent growth. The trend never changed. Interest rates got to two and a half percent and the economy was heading towards a recession quite quickly. We don't know if COVID didn't happen, would we have gone into a recession? We don't know. But the economy was clearly heading into a recession and they had to reverse policy and start cutting interest rates. And that was at a 250 basis point Fed funds rate. We have higher debt, worse demographics. So again, coming at it from a different angle, logic would suggest that we would be able to handle a lesser Fed funds rate than, than that. 
and we're now pricing at, at 3.1. So the pricing could, could continue to increase. We could forecast 3.5, 3.6, something like that. But I think that the economy will deteriorate so rapidly under those increased forecasts that I don't believe that they'll ultimately get there. I, I love that you, you brought up the example of uh, 2018, right? Because, uh, you know, for those of you who aren't looking at this chart, right, you could say, oh, well, um, you know, we just slash interest rates, right, because of COVID. But actually, that trend had already begun at, you know, the Powell pivot, right, which was the end exactly. of 2018, beginning of 2019. And I think uh, Diego Perea actually wrote about this and his he wrote a great uh, start of the year, this anti-bubble report. Um, you know, but I think he had a very similar target, basically, for the interest rates that the economy could sustain. And he had it at about 2.5%. And looking up against this chart, I think it's so great for a number of reasons, because you can kind of see, you know, there are two worrisome factors here, right? So one, to your point before, you know, it used to be that the Fed funds rate would have to go well above kind of that descending black line. Mm -hmm. But now it seems like, you know, even if we get close, right, that kind of tends to be correlated with a recession. But the black line itself, which is the trending uh, 20 year GDP, that's also going down. So you have less buffer room in an economy that's increasingly sensitive, uh, right, to these two factors. That's exactly right. So yeah, I think that's why it's important to have this secular framework, because even if you're a shorter term investor, and you're looking at six to 12 month trends, you sort of still have to know, do you have these secular tailwinds at your back or not, right? Because they really are gravity. Let's kind of move to the next, uh, you know, part of that outline, which was housing um, mm -hmm. in general. Uh, so can you kind of walk us through just how you think about housing uh, and it, I guess just the current state of like you and I were talking about uh, the current real estate uh, environment right. in New York. Uh, I will tell you, it is a pretty wonky uh, situation to be in. I've never really seen anything like yeah. it. Yeah. Housing would be very early in, in the sequence to move given its sensitivity to interest rates. So the Federal Reserve changes interest rate expectations, private interest rates move. Now those interest rates filter through to housing. In, in 2007, uh, Ed Lemer wrote a paper called Housing is the Business Cycle. It's a little bit of a hyperbole, but basically the, the point of the paper was if you had to pick one segment of the economy to drive, the housing is, is the segment, right? Be it's a small share of the economy in terms of aggregate size, but it's one of the most cyclical and it has the largest... Uh, knock-on effects, right? So when whenever you purchase a new house, there's a lot of construction that has to go into it. There's remodeling, there's furniture, there's appliances. So it's a, it's a high multiplier, high velocity sector, and it's extremely cyclical. So that's why housing tends to, to lead the cycle and it tends to sort of drive the cycle. Where housing goes, the rest of the economy tends to go. There's a couple false signals over the last uh, 40, 50 years. But for the most part, it's very, very difficult for housing to turn down, but the economy not to turn down, right? So um, what we see now is housing uh, got uh, a huge cyclical boost. Um, I would say that the cyclical boost that housing got was mainly a structural demographic shift versus one of fiscal stimulus. I think fiscal stimulus played a role, but I don't think people were moving because of a $2,000 stimulus check. I think it had more to do with a change in preferences of living in cities, wanting to move to suburbs, wanting more space, having the flexibility to work from home. I think all of those factors were very real and caused a massive um, change in, in the demand for housing. So we had this huge rise in housing at the same time that we had record low mortgage rates. So housing 
sort of exploded. And you look at the new construction numbers and you look at the existing numbers and the prices went up. So now the mortgage rate is ticking up. And that's generally one of the best leading indicators for housing because people's affordability has, has changed as much as 30%. And uh, I have a chart which you could show. Uh, it's the change in private borrowing rates. So what this chart shows, and this is a long leading economic indicator. So we went through that whole sequence. We're in the housing part. We're in the longer leading phase. So what, what this chart shows, it's, it's a composite of private borrowing rates. It's corporate and mortgage rates and a couple other things. But what I'm looking at is the 18-month change in these private borrowing rates. And what we can see is that over the last 18 months, an aggregate of, of private rates has increased 175 basis points, which if you go back over the last... 30 years, it's basically the, the sharpest private borrowing rate shock that the economy has ever seen, right? And I don't present these charts as uh, a means to say, you know, you look at this chart and you say, okay, that means a recession, right? That's, that's not what I'm trying to present here. I'm trying to uh, show that over the last several cycles, this is a very extreme shock to private borrowing rates, right? So one indicator does not tell you that we're going to have a recession. It's about the sequence. So you mentioned housing. This chart would show you that housing likely is going to have a large decline in activity, volumes before price. So what I would look for in this economic sequence is over the next three to four months, I would be looking at the early housing data, building permits, MBA purchase applications, which by the way are already declining, um, things like that that show early activity in the housing sector because if those uh, indicators start to, to, to pull back 10, 15% and you have a you know, 10%, 15% decline in housing volumes, that's going to exacerbate that downward economic cycle because you have less volume of new construction, that's going to be less new orders for raw materials, that's going to be less hours worked for contractor and construction employees, and there you have that cycle continuing to feed on itself. So uh, where we stand right now is I would expect over the next three to six months, you do see a large decline in housing activity. And I think that's being forecasted, by the way, in, in housing and home building stocks. If you look at the ratio of, of ITB or XHB or PKB, which are very housing sensitive sectors, uh, they've been getting beat up pretty good. And if you look at it relative to SPY, they're almost back at least halfway back to their COVID lows. So I think that the market is, is forecasting this cyclical slowdown that we're going to see in the housing market. Volumes first, uh, you know, price would lag. And then the, the, uh, the sequence would, would then flow towards new orders, right? New orders for household furnishings, household appliances, uh, raw materials for construction. And uh, my last point would be an anecdote is the CEO of Restoration Hardware. It was going around Twitter that he had a really um, flagrant conference call where he basically said, look, our business totally changed. Over the last four weeks, our business has dried up completely. Now that's one company. We'll have to see if it flows through to other people, but it would make sense with this sequence. I mean, housing is very interesting. I, I've started to think more and more about housing in general, uh, just because it's kind of part of the social contract of living in America. And I just don't envy policymakers in, just in terms of the trade-offs that they have to make when they look at this market, right? Because one of the things that's unique about housing is unlike other financial assets, you live in it, right? <laughs> uh, you don't live in a stock. Uh, right. People need homes. 
uh, in general. So they have kind of this pretty unique, unique spot in that way. So uh, in one sense, it's actually just in terms of equality, especially between demographics, you could argue it's actually kind of good, right? You don't, you don't want housing to be so unaffordable that no one, no one can buy it. On the other hand, you know, I, I love this connection that you made. Yeah. It's, it's a super important sector just in terms of economic activity, right? Because it kind of ripples through and impacts all of these other uh, different kind of core sectors of the economy. So less of a question, but I just do not, I just do not envy policymakers that are looking at this market right now. And, and I think that it ends up undermining the growth and undermining the, even the demographics, because as the home prices get more unaffordable, um, one, you have, you know, for, for most of the population, you have less discretionary room in the rest of your budget, right? So you're going to go out and, and do less investing. Right. Uh, and by investing, I mean investing in the real economy versus uh, financial investing. So you have less capacity to do it, to, to make investments. You have less capacity to take, you know, career risk, let's say, and, and, and do something more productive with your uh, career. Uh, and also it undermines the demographics because, you know, where people uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago may have been able to purchase homes in their 20s and start families. Now that's been pushed back to the late 30s, even 40s. Uh, there, there's a clock on, you know, really the, the ability to, to have children. You know, it becomes increasingly difficult after 40 for sure. So as you push back the, the ability for people to, to afford homes and start a family, that undermines the demographics, that, that creates this sort of, or, or at least reinforces this population bust that we're seeing. We see it in the fertility rates, they're collapsing. People are having less kids, they're having you know, 1.5, 1.6 kids instead of 2.2, 2.3, 2.4. Uh, and then also when you have uh, less births, it also impacts growth because uh, children are expensive, right? They're expensive and you need a lot yep. of resources to go towards them. Uh, which, you know, in, in a way help the economy move forward. Yeah. As my parents have reminded me uh, throughout the course of my entire life, children are expensive. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a curve on consumption. It, it basically is a very clear, you know, upside down you where you need people in the young cohort to be increasing their consumption. And as soon as you get to 55, you hit your peak consumption and you're going down. I mean, mm. you may be wealthy, but even if you have all of this money and you're 75 years old, you're probably not going to buy the same volume of houses that you did when you were in your 40s and you had kids or you're not going to buy cars or you may not travel as much if you're, uh, if you're uh, not as physically capable as you were when you were in your 30s or 40s. So, um, you know, the demographics is everything. And I think that, that pushing this wealth effect has a lot of long-term negative consequences. Let's kind of, uh, you know, return to our model here and move to the next phase of things, right? So mm-hmm. a slowdown in housing, right? That would kind of translate to some of these um, or raw kind of economic factors. Like, can you kind of walk us through what the next phase is here? When housing starts to slow down, um, you'll see it in the housing numbers, which I mentioned, which um, some of which are already coming down, like MBA purchase applications and things like that. But the next spot that I would uh, look for would be hours worked in the construction or manufacturing sector because people will tend to reduce hours worked of employees before laying off employees, right? I would look at various categories of new orders because if you're seeing a slowdown in housing construction, there will be less new orders for raw materials to to build the actual house or remodel the actual house. And there will be less new orders for consumer 
durable goods. You think of ovens, washing machines, refrigerators, all of the big appliances that go into a house which require a manufacturing process to make. Right? That's why housing is such an engine of the economy because it takes a lot more economic activity to uh, order a refrigerator, uh, have it produced, get the materials, put it together, ship it across uh, um, you know, wherever it came from, you know, maybe Asia, all the shipping versus um, you know, maybe going to a movie theater, a service type consumption. Right. So there's a lot more volume and multiplier effect to the housing. So I, I did put a chart in there uh, of new orders from the ISM. And I do believe that even though we haven't really seen this slowdown in housing come through yet, because we're just seeing the rise in mortgage rates, you are already seeing the effect show up in things like new orders, right? ISM new orders would be slightly leading to the overall ISM manufacturing index. And we saw the new orders component fall to a 22-month low. Now, it's not below the 50 level yet, which means that the new orders are still rising, but they're rising at a slower pace. And when we look at asset prices, asset prices are not sensitive to above or below 50. They're sensitive to the rate of change in, uh, in economic data. So um, when you look back to 2018, Asset prices started to trend uh, lower, or, or at least the cyclical components of it, in early 2018. It didn't wait for new orders to get below 50, right? So we've seen new orders roll off their cycle peak, and they're now at a 22-month low, at a time that we haven't even seen this housing slowdown really accelerate yet. And the next chart would be ISM new orders relative to inventory. This would be another step in the sequence that I'd be looking for, right? the mismatch between businesses having too much inventory relative to the new orders that are coming in, right? So when this line is moving lower, that means that new orders are underperforming inventory, right? So that would make sense if uh, businesses are forecasting a lot of activity, they're buying a lot of inventory, they're stockpiling a lot of uh, couches and refrigerators and ovens because people are going to order them. All of a sudden you get a slowdown in housing, new orders slow, but you still have all this inventory, right? So this line falls. That would be the next step in the sequence. And you could see this peaked earlier than the new orders chart in early 2018. It peaked early in 2016 before that upturn. And this has declined really substantially which means that new orders are, are underperforming inventory. So, so businesses on balance are going to be feeling like they have too much stuff. And then that's where we are in the middle part of this sequence. And if a business is seeing less new orders, they have more inventory, the next step in the sequence would be they have to slow down production, right? They, they need to slow down the rate at which they're accumulating more inventory. Eric, can we just call this chart the Peloton chart? Uh, just, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> just moving forward, uh, the Peloton exactly. effect. But yeah. but yeah, that 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 is the point where uh, all of a sudden you thought you had all this demand, and I think that this chart is is more important for this economic cycle versus the last one because this economic upturn was so stimulus induced. It was not based on organic trend economic demand that that I think a lot of businesses mistakenly forecasted this unbelievable boom in demand that they saw 
for a new secular trend when it, all it was was very clearly a cyclical bounce coming out of a recession on top of a stimulus-induced uh, sort of sugar-high type demand. They ordered way too much stuff. A lot of it had to do with supply chains also. There was a lot of double and triple ordering because you couldn't get a lot of stuff, so you had to try and order it from three different places and see whatever came in first. But what we're going to see, in my view, is we're going to see, and I think this chart is indicative of that, is is uh, companies that are just basically saying that they have way too much inventory. And if you look back to the Q3 GDP report, there was a 2% build in inventory. If you look at the Q4 GDP report, there was a 3% build in inventory. Over time, inventory nets to zero in the GDP numbers, right? Because you stockpile inventory, you clear inventory. Right. We have a five-point build in inventory that's going to have to come out this year. Huh. So that's going wow. to drag on GDP, and I believe that the step that uh, 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 businesses will take ultimately is they're going to have to slow down the rate of production. They're going to have to slow down their production, and that's where we move into the next sequence, right? Because if you slow down your production, generally you need less people. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. All right. So take us there, right? I feel like I'm following you here. We've got an uh, increase in uh, interest rates, borrowing costs, right? That's coming from the Fed. That gets translated into housing uh, in general, right? So as it becomes more expensive to finance the cost of a house, obviously um, people buy less homes. Uh, that kind of trickles into the economy because housing drives uh, such a big part of the economy. It drives durable goods, new orders. Right, exactly. Uh, and that's why you're starting to see this kind of build up. And now you're starting to see this build up in inventory across businesses. So walk us through this kind of next step in the phase, which is corporate profits. Sure. So where this would happen next. So now corporate margins are getting squeezed because um, interest rates are rising, their borrowing costs are rising, and their new orders or their future uh, books are coming down, right? So they're starting to get squeezed on their, on their profit margins. Profit margins would compress before their uh, aggregate profits. So now corporate profits are starting to get a little bit shaky. Right. So companies, you know, they're facing higher, perhaps higher inflation, higher interest rates. They have they're seeing a slowdown in the new orders book. So now companies have to react to protect those profits. And it's the reaction that continues to drive the cycle. 
So their first reaction would be certainly to slow the hours worked of any contract or any uh, employees that may not be full-time because it's a less binding activity than hiring or firing somebody. Um, but then the next step is they may have to uh, slow down production. And production would be another coincident indicator, something like the industrial production index, right? Uh, so they may have to slow down production. And if that doesn't work, they may have to actually outright uh, start to lay people off. And I put another chart in here, which shows the growth rate of employment for these cyclical sectors of the economy. So going through this sequence, it's the housing and the durable goods that are leading this sequence, right? So it would make sense that you would see the employment of the housing and the durable goods start to fall before the rest of the economy. So what this red line shows is the average growth rate of housing, or I'm sorry, construction and manufacturing employment uh, before recessions. And this goes all the way back to the last 12 recessions. So what it shows is that on average, you see the growth rate of construction and manufacturing employees decline sharply in the five, six months before recession, and it falls negative before the recession, before broader employment. Broader employment's not very cyclical, right? You have education, you have healthcare. Some of these sectors never lose jobs in recession, which is why it's so important to focus on the cyclical aspects of the, of the, um, of the economy. So we should see a slowdown in, uh, if this sequence continues to play out, the, the final step before a recession would be a significant slowdown in the growth rate of construction and manufacturing jobs. And this is 20 million payrolls still in the United States. I know we have 150 total. This is about 20 million of them. Uh, this was not updated as of the last jobs report, but I can tell you that the green line is, is, is the current trend. The red line is the average before recessions. The green is the current trend. The green line stayed flat at 3.9%. So what that means is we're not at recession's door yet because the, the employment is still strong in these sectors. The growth rate's still accelerating. We haven't had this full sequence play out yet. But what I would be looking for to confirm that a recession is months away rather than quarters away is if we start to see, okay, look, we had the interest, you know, go through the whole sequence. We had the interest rates move up. We had uh, the mortgage rates move up because the Federal Reserve is tightening policy. We see a slowdown in purchase applications. We, we perhaps may start to see a slowdown in permits activity. We're seeing that ripple through a slowdown in new orders for consumer durable goods. We're seeing profit margins compressed. We're seeing profits start to slow. Uh, hours worked coming down. And now if we start to see a decline in these sectors of actual employment, that would be the indication that this sequence is fully entrenched, it's cycling, and it's heading for a recession. I mean, so this is kind of that that last phase, right? So after a slowdown in, in corporate profits and everything, do you see a slowdown in employment uh, in general? So they need to protect those profits, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's also, it's one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve, right? And that's why these, these cycles are so cyclical, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. after you get this slowdown and then unemployment starts to creep up, the Fed says, hey, wait, I've got a dual mandate let's ease. Right. And exactly. I think what we're kind of that, that's how this all comes full circle. Right. Because when exactly. finally, 
these ripples happen to the economy, we see unemployment, that's when the Fed steps back in, starts it all over again. Exactly. And that's, that's exactly what it is, because now they're going to drop interest rates, then those mortgage rates are going to come down, those private corporate borrowing rates are going to come down, and the whole sequence starts to work in reverse. Right. Two points I would make on that is one, um, in very highly indebted economies, the tightening effect works much stronger than the easing effect. So when they lower interest rates to try and stimulate demand, when, when the economy becomes extremely over indebted, sometimes there's no, there's no response. Right. And I think that we started to see that uh, towards the end of the last cycle in 2018, where they were cutting interest rates, the economy still really wasn't picking up. Then we had the COVID interruption. We don't know what would have happened, but that's where this whole concept of now fiscal policy has to take over because monetary policy just doesn't work anymore. I don't believe that fiscal policy will uh, be able to correct these problems. I think it'll ultimately make them worse, but I do want to point out that that easing effect is not as potent as the tightening effect. If they want to tighten, they can slow things down, and we're seeing that pretty pretty dramatically. And I think over the next three to six months, we're going to see this slow down really take hold. But when they want to ease policy, it doesn't always work because the economy is too indebted, and just because you lower interest rates, you can't force people to borrow, right? The second point uh, that I want to make is that there's a little bit of a dilemma this time, right? Because the inflation rate is very high, which is their dual mandate. Right. So what happens, Michael, this is the trillion dollar question that everyone yep. wants to know, is mm -hmm. if this sequence plays out exactly like we described, which I believe that it will, because I think these leading indicators are uh, reliable across many cycles, they're logical in terms of the economic sequence, and they're developing sort of as we would expect. So what would happen if three to six months from now that decline in residential building employees wasn't a one-off? What if we have three, four, five, six months and cyclical jobs growth starts to roll over and there are some weak employment numbers and the inflation rate is still 7%, right? Now they have a dual mandate. Which one do they pick? It, it's unclear. We've never really been in this situation before. Um, I personally believe, and I think that where we translate this framework into asset markets is I believe there's a huge mispricing going on. What I see is the Federal Reserve saying, based on their dot plots, their Fed speak, the you know uh, governors that come out on a weekly basis, I think that the Fed is very much guiding towards seven or eight rate hikes. The bond market is up at nine additional rate hikes. And that's certainly priced into the curve. We can, we can see that pricing. So the Fed is saying, you know, let's say eight, eight more hikes, seven more hikes. The bond market is saying nine more hikes. The bond market is saying if you do nine more hikes, we're going to have an inverted curve. In my view, risk assets are not pricing in that tightening path. Risk assets, in my opinion, are picking up on the concept that you alluded to earlier, which is, they're going to ease as soon as things get a little dicey. But that's not what the bond market's saying. The bond market's saying they gotta go through with nine. If we go back to that first chart that I showed with the GDP potential and, and the Fed funds rate, the bond market is saying that they're gonna to get to that level that's likely to cause a recession. Equities are certainly, or, or credit, uh, high yield credit, certainly not reacting in that way. Um, 
And this is, I think, where you have to sort of read the tea leaves of the market. And when you look at the cyclical areas of the market, like I mentioned, you have to look at the when you when you look at uh, markets and asset prices, you have to look at it in the same way as you do with economic data. If you look at the S and P 500, which is driven primarily by technology stocks, those didn't come into the sequence that we just outlined, right? They're not very cyclical businesses. Google's not a very cyclical business. So where do you want to look? You want to look to the housing stocks. You want to look to any building and construction stocks. You want to look to any industrial stocks, things that are sensitive to durable goods, consumer durable goods. You want to look at those areas of the market. And when you look at those areas of the market, they actually are starting to decline. They're starting to decline certainly in relative terms and they're starting to decline in absolute terms as well. So I think the market is starting to pick up on this slowdown. I don't think enough. And I think there's a mispricing here between broad risk assets and what's priced into the bond market. So I think either rates have to rally, bond prices have to increase if this tightening path truly is too aggressive and they're not going to do it, or risk assets have to come down, that they are going to do this tightening path, right? We can't have uh, the, the equity market comfortable with the fact that they're going to hike rates three or four times and then maybe back off and the bond market saying nine. And I think right there is the asymmetry in the market at the moment. Yeah, I think a lot of this depends, Eric, on how persistent and secular we see the trend of inflation being as well. And, you know, you and I were chatting briefly before we got on this call just about this kind of new buzzword or narrative that's beginning to emerge, which is the new multipolar world that we're headed in. And just to describe what that means, if we were in a unipolar world, which is a world that was largely determined by the economic needs of the United States, so we had supply chains kind of set up to be the most efficient, cost-effective possible solution for people that are living in the United States, now perhaps we start to see coalitions, right? Separate supply chains, maybe one for the Western hemisphere, right? Where a lot of production manufacturing happens in Mexico or other low cost, and maybe some, some more actually being in the United States or Canada. Mm -hmm. And then there's kind of this separate Eastern supply chain, right, which is largely governed by uh, some sort of coalition between Russia and China and maybe Turkey. And then Europe kind of splits depending on their economic interests. Um, I feel like that's probably the primary driver, right, of, of inflation and how sticky you see inflation being. I guess my question to you is, do you see persistently sticky inflation and do you agree with that kind of thesis? So where, where I struggle with that thesis is whether we, whether we like it or not, the United States is the consumer of last resort for the whole world, right? Mm. And it's unclear that uh, a country has enough internal demand, or if you take the United States out of the equation that all these countries put together have enough demand to even sustain a separate supply chain that doesn't include the United States, right? If the United States falls into a recession, everyone falls into a recession, right? Everyone is still too linked to the U.S. economy, in my view, to, to, to break up these supply chains and create a, a whole new capacity to service everyone ex-U.S. I don't believe that there's enough demand there. I think all of the demand from these other countries comes from producing the goods that get shipped to the United States, secondarily uh, some parts of Europe, and then thirdly uh, China. But I, I, I don't also believe that the inflation that we're going to see is going to be a paradigm shift or a secular change in the rate of inflation um, for the next 10, 15, 20 years. I don't think inflation is going to stay at 6, 7, 8% for the next extended period of time. Does it, does it stay above 2%? It's possible. 
But where I come out on this is we're not creating nominal GDP growth out of thin air. Nominal GDP growth, like, I, like we see in this chart here on the black line, is a function of trend economic potential. Just because inflation uh, is going to be four, five, six percent doesn't mean this nominal trend all of, a, all of a sudden rises. If we do see a stickier inflation rate, which we are at the moment, all that's going to do is it's going to reduce real growth. We're just going to trade between real and inflation, real and inflation. So if real sticks higher, I mean, I'm sorry, if inflation sticks higher, real will stick lower. If inflation comes down, real may come up a little bit, but we're not going to be able to deviate from this long-term trend. And ultimately, the inflation will come down because if inflation sticks too high and real income sticks too low, as in negative, then that's going to translate to a reduction in employment, the sequence that we just outlined, because real economic activity is unit volume. Inflation is price, right? So if we have price times quantity, if real is quantity and real is negative and you have falling quantity, you need less production. You need less people. So the, the decline in real income will ultimately bring down the rate of inflation, even if certain localized goods, like maybe oil prices, stay high. Broadly, we won't be able to sustain price increases across every basket. This chart here, I think, helps make that point, which is this is real income excluding the transfer payments. So we take out what comes from the government to try and normalize it across time because transfer payments were a lot lower uh, several decades ago. But what you can see here is that uh, real income for most of the 1970s, 1973 to 79, was 2.2%. We were sustaining high levels of real income even though uh, inflation was high. There was a, a, a two-year period where real income fell right at the end of the inflation, and it, and it did, in fact, end the inflation. Right now, we're seeing real income from, from the start of COVID till now has only been 0.9%. And it's assuredly going to trend lower because we haven't even factored in these higher inflation numbers from Russia and Ukraine. Those haven't come into the numbers yet. So I think over the next couple of months, we're going to see this real income number negative, which is something that didn't happen in the 1970s. It didn't happen in the 1940s. And when real income falls negative, mathematically, consumers will have to pull back on some other portion of their spending basket. And I think where they pull back is exactly the economic sequence that we just outlined. It's housing and durable goods. Yeah, I, I like this chart because it does, um, you know, it does highlight changes between, you know, people like to compare previous inflationary bouts in, in U.S. history, the most recent being the 1970s, right? And then there was the 1940s. I think this is a really big difference. Sorry to interject. Go to yeah. the other chart that shows all the way back to the 1940s. This shows, a, 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 I think it was... Yeah, there you go. Where the 1940s is the red box. 1940s had real income growth on a 10-year sustained annualized basis in between 2 and 9%. There was a huge spike because of the war. There was a lot of production that happened. In the, in the 1970s, which is the second box, we were in between 2 and 5%. Uh, where I just showed on the graph now is the, re is the red box on the right. That's 0 0.9. That's where we're at now. Hmm. It's a big difference between the last yeah. two inflationary periods. And I believe that this is going to be a factor of why this inflation is not going to stick for a decade to come. Does it hover around for another couple of months? Sure, it might. 
but it won't hover around for another couple of months without coming out of real income and therefore coming out of durable goods and other things like that. Mm. I guess the the bogey here, Eric, uh, in general is, you know, one thing that has been a little bit concerning to me in general is sort of this rise of, of populism that you're seeing, I think globally, but also specifically within the United States. Populism tends to be historically correlated with helicopter money. It wasn't called that at the time, right? The Romans called it bread and circuses. It was called different things throughout the years. But you're already starting to see these kind of funny policies come out. Uh, Mark and I actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? You had, you know, Gavin Newsom's reaction in California to rising gas prices Mm -hmm. is essentially a handout for that. Uh, You you actually have uh, this uh, finance minister in, in Quebec actually giving out money to combat inflation. I'm not suggesting that these have become systemic government mm-hmm. policies. But the, the bogey here that I could see, right, uh, the, the, what could make up for potentially the, the loss in real income is the, is the less transfer payments part. If we start including transfer payments and actually ramp those up, I think that, that, could, that could change the calculus here. And ultimately, I think that'd be a pretty bad situation. But um, yeah. I'm curious if you think that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it's a little bit ridiculous, right, that we have a <laughs> extremely high gas tax and then the price is too high. So then we're going to give people money back to pay for the same gas that we're taxing really high. I mean, all these things do become a little bit ridiculous. Um, But therein lies the point, right, of when government spending or government debt to GDP rises to uh, extremely high levels, you start to see these unbelievable reductions in productivity. Right. Mm-hmm. And that pushes the growth rate lower, not higher. Let's take the uh, stimulus check example. Right. Let's say that we, we do adopt a policy of continued stimulus checks, uh, which I think most people would argue that that we will. Well, we have to look through how does this impact the whole economy? We can't just look at step one. We have to look at the whole changing incentive structure. Right. So let's say, uh, Michael, that let's call it, you know, the, the, the safety net or, or the maximum amount of dollars that you're able to earn without working. Let's say it was $30,000 and the median income was 60. Right. Mm-hmm. What you're really asking people to do is work for 30. So your wage is really 30 because you could get 30 without working or you can get 60 by working. So what you're really doing is asking people to put forward the effort to work for 30, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you push those transfer payments to 40. You actually reduced everyone's income. You're now asking people to work for 20, not for 30, right? Mm. So wouldn't it make sense that we would see a decline in labor force participation? We would see Mm. less employment because you're now reducing the incentive for work? Right. So now you you change the incentives of the labor market. I don't have a chart in this deck, but you look at the labor force participation rate. Um, it has fallen quite dramatically as we've increased the the secular rise in in uh, income that we're distributing through transfer payments. Right. So where these government policies reduce economic growth. And this is a point that I think is conceptually difficult is People will say, well, interest rates are low or the government doesn't have a constraint on paying interest. That is not 
where government spending reduces growth. If you look at Japan, interest rates are negative. They don't have an interest expense constraint. In, in Europe, the interest rates are negative. They don't have an interest expense constraint. But growth is still terrible over there, right? We don't have an interest expense constraint either. Where higher government spending comes out in lower economic growth is it, is it reduces the productivity of the economy, right? It either reduces incentive structure in the labor market. We could take another example. Let's say I increase government spending to build a bridge, right? And I take you from Blockworks and I pay you to build the bridge. And then I knock the bridge down and I build it again. You are now contributing no productivity to society, even though you're employed and you're getting money from the government, which is coming from taxes or debt, and you're being stolen from the private sector, right? Where you would have otherwise probably had a higher level of productivity because you wouldn't have been higher in the private sector unless you were producing more for your employer than they were paying you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been employed. So as the government sector grows larger through higher government spending, and this is reflected in debt to GDP, we see more resources pulled to the government sector, whether it's employment resources or, uh, or spending resources. Those change the private sector incentive structures, which reduce overall productivity. This is, again, this real versus inflation debate. So those real numbers are going to keep pushing lower and lower and lower until ultimately they fall negative. And once the real economic growth rate is, is pushed negative and it won't come out of negative territory, that's when the disinflationary cycle really starts to pick up because unit volumes are now contracting. And if unit volumes are contracting on a sustained basis, then you have too much factory capacity. You have too much labor capacity. Right? So you can't have a secular rise in inflation with declining unit volumes. Hmm. And the unit volumes will be reflected in real growth. Let me, let me ask you this just to kind of wrap things up. You and I are no longer Michael Ippolito and Eric Besmation. We are the leaders of the free world, right? Uh, oh, we're man, describing... That's a scary place. It's been, hey, it's a big <laughs> promotion. Congratulations, my man. We'll grab a beer after this. Uh, okay. Or, or, or several beers, because it's not exactly yeah, a right. fun position to be in uh, anymore. But okay, how do we solve this problem, right? I think, you know, to summarize everything that we're describing, we've really been describing how uh, kind of these cyclical downturns and upturns work on a, let's say, a three to five year basis, something mm -hmm. like that. Overall, though, the trend, you know, the big problem has been we've just accumulated all this debt, right, which is right. stepping on productivity. There are other reasons why we got demographics and technology and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. How do we get rid of that, right? How do we change this kind of cycle of stagnation uh, into something that actually looks... How do we get out of this trap that we're currently in? There's no real way to solve it painlessly, right? A lot of people are trying to come up with these very clever situations of if we do fiscal over here and QE over here and mix them together and all these, you know, what are called theories of grand design that all of a sudden we're going to produce magical results, it's not going to work that way. What we continue to do is reduce people's real income as we try these more you know, crazy experimental type policies. So I don't think that there's a painless solution to the problem that we haven't thought of over the last 5,000 years of history, right? 5,000 years of economic history, people have tried everything. They've tried printing money. They've tried fiscal handouts. It doesn't work, right? The only thing that works over time is uh, increasing the productivity of your population, through investing in, you know, sort of capital deepening, capital accumulation, investing in 
things that advance uh, uh, technology and, and production capacity. So painlessly, I'm not sure that there's, there's a real answer to it. What we ultimately have to do is we have to correct uh, the debt problem. We can correct the debt problem on the private sector by sort of, you know, what we talked about is letting the private sector sort of clear. If the interest rates do rise and the housing sector starts to correct, you kind of just have to let it be. Uh, people don't want to do that, though, because there's pain associated with that. The private sector would be slower, easier to solve. Um, the government sector is you have to reduce the spending or you have to increase the taxes. The taxes would slow economic growth, so no one wants to do that, but you have to reduce the spending. And the problem here is that the spending is all basically built into law through the major entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So you really can't solve the problem without tackling those three programs. Uh, and there's really no ability or willingness to tackle those programs because they were promises that were made. So it's sort of an unsolvable problem if you don't want to tackle those issues. Sort of a Hail Mary last ditch effort is you could totally deregulate uh, and try and massively reduce regulations. I think, I think Trump was uh, sort of on that path. I think that he was at least reducing regulations to some extent. It wasn't in effect long enough to know if it was really going to change anything. I think that the, the structural debt problem was just too powerful for the amount of deregulation that they were doing. But you could attempt something like a mass deregulation and hope that that would spawn some sort of uh, productivity, sort of get the red tape out of the way and see if that increases things. But it wouldn't work unless you also reduce the debt side of it because the debt side of it is just compounding at a rate that's too high. Uh, but if you were to somehow able to, at least as a percentage of GDP, keep the debt levels relatively constant and then maybe try to deregulate, uh, you may have some chance there. But it's it's getting to be a more and more unsolvable solution, which is sort of a, a tough picture because we've undermined the demographics so badly from having this problem stick around so long that even if you fix the debt problem, you're still left with the demographic problem, which mm. can't be solved in, in a matter of years yeah so it, it's quite difficult here it's a tough position that i signed us up for uh, yeah. but i have no doubt that you and me will put our heads <laughs> together we'll solve it man um eric this has been a ton of fun thank you so much uh, for your time if folks want to find out more about you the research that you do what's the best way to do it sure thank you and thanks for having me on uh, i'm pretty active on twitter so you can give me a follow there uh, if you go on epbmacroresearch.com, I have a framework document which sort of takes you through everything that we just described start to finish, the secular trends, the cyclical trends, where things move in the sequence. And then um, I update that process on a monthly basis, a report that I put out. I have some premium research. It's called EPB Basic. Uh, it's a monthly and a quarterly report. The monthly report updates these cyclical trends that we talked about. The quarterly report updates these longer-term secular trends. Uh, the combination of the two of them should give you a decent idea of uh, where we're headed. Uh, I highly recommend you check out Eric's work. I'm sure many of you are already familiar with it, but uh, definitely give it two thumbs up. I'll link the, uh, we were kind of flipping through different slides today. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, Eric, this has been a ton of fun, man. Thanks for coming on. Uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Thanks. And hopefully we're, we're demoted from our presidential role. The next oh time God, I back. hope so, man. I hope so. I'm going to self-sabotage <laughs> yeah. and get out of that. Yeah. Uh, awesome, Eric. I'll All talk right, to you thanks. soon, man. Bye.